0: Hello, and welcome to How to Make a Film. This is a podcast for anyone who's making a film or wants to make a film or is interested in making films or just likes films. My name is Dan Freeman. I am a filmmaker, I'm a writer and director, and I'm making a film called Hold Excalibur. So I thought it would be great to chart the journey of making that big feature film from near the start. Uh, With me to help with that is my old friend from across the pond Sean Hurley
1: hey, and my name is Sean Hurley and I'm a writer and I live in New Hampshire in the United States very very far away from Dan
0: yeah we've known each other years haven't we and we but we've never actually physically met which is um, it's painful <laughs>
1: it's I mean it's painful we, we we do invite each other over a lot so you uh, you know even a week ago you invited me to come over and stay I,
0: it's never happened, I don't think that but, was but it me. may one day. Uh, it doesn't sound like me. Yes, you did. You always are. Well, I will eventually come to your lovely state and see the snow snowy trails where you uh, you run. Yeah, I'm also a runner. I like to run in the mountains here. The snowy trails.
1: And someday I'll run in uh, in your your part of there. well. I universe.
0: I've thought thought about that often, and then I thought you know it's sort of yeah I like running. I mean when I say I like running, I'm a little fat sweaty man frightening people along the canal. Mm. You know you do these huge distances, and you're a a, a big tall lad. And i i think of you know hey we'll go running together, and it'll, it'll be about five minutes in, and you'll have to <laughs> you'll have to get the air ambulance.
1: Well that's okay that's okay. I mean. Uh, I'm not, I don't think that I'm a very welcome sight on the trails. I look too old to be running where I'm running. And people fear for me and often stop me and warn me of the perils of doing what I'm doing. Like I'm going to trip and fall. I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm not that old, but I look very old because I have very white hair and I have a Gandalf like way about me as I, as I gamble through the mountains. So that's how people can picture me. But we're just uh, we're we're supporters of each other's work. So I've read early drafts of Holex Excalibur*. It's a terrifically good script, very exciting, and um, I'm happy to be here to talk about my experience working in television and currently working in theater. Um, I have a play in rehearsal now, and I've experienced things leading up to the writers' strike. I know what it's like to be in writers' rooms. I've been on sets where. Very expensive TV shows have been made, and so I have some sense of that. I never have personally made a film, but I know a good bit about how they are made, and I am daunted by it.
0: (laughs) Well, I I think one of the things I'm going to talk about is I think that you can make a film without making a film. I mean, you can make something very filmic. And I, one of my genuine greatest sort of thing one of the things that I'm most proud of is that I feel like I coaxed you into writing plays. Oh, you did? Was that did, am I just imagining that? No,
1: no, me- no, I was I was deep in TV land. I was writing scripts and I was pitching show ideas and I think at the same time I was always still expressing like what a difficult landscape it is um working in that that world, especially when you're someone like me who's kind of like, you know, I like to live where I live, in the mountains. (laughs) I don't necessarily want to spend my life in other cities, um, in hotels, and, you know, whatever. So, like, becoming a filmmaker can be uh, a big lifestyle choice. And I was at that, you know, back maybe when I was fretting and writing all these things, I was still, like, unsure. Do I really want to do this? And I think you just at some point just say, well, write a play. And... It was it was just a terrific relief to me and i think i just started like the next day i stopped writing like the epic sci-fi tv show uh and started writing a very small play um yeah so th- i'm i'm very grateful to you for that so thank you
0: you're welcome i'm i'm grateful i'm i'm really pleased about that i mean it's uh that your your plays are are really wonderful and at the end of the podcast We're going to tell people where where they can see your work. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some sort of filmmaking hoo-ha. I got a question. Mark Oxbrow, I think is his surname. Forgive me if I've got that wrong, Mark. Asked, how do you go about getting funding for a film? I think that's a really interesting question because it's such an enormously expensive business if you're uh, making a feature film, a cinematic feature film.
1: It's a very, very tricky trying business, but what you're doing with Hold Axe Calibre, I think, is sort of like a new model that I, I see potentially, especially with the writer's strike, the actor's strike, the state of things in Hollywood and the world as far as cinema making. I feel like what you're doing is probably an interesting expedition into the new but I don't know if that's where you were going to go first. Maybe we were going to go into the more standard forms of trying to raise funds.
0: Well, I was thinking more that, I mean, we, we've all been through the horror of trying to get a film off the ground, which is incredibly difficult. I remember what one um, hugely successful film producer said to me, just don't try and do that. Just go with the resources you've got. And I think that that's a really good bit of advice in a way. Unless you have to make it that big, and perhaps even if you do, try and make it with small resources, try and make a a smaller iteration of it. And here's the thought that if you can write and conceive of a film, then you can conceive of a play or a novel or an audio version. I've made audio movies and audio is, well, as you know, Sean, is incredibly easy and cheap to make to, I would say, the same professional standard as a feature film. So I would really think about the forms because you can make a movie on stage. You can make a, a very filmic novel. You can make a very filmic play and you can certainly make a very filmic audio. So I, I would consider those roots as well.
1: Oh, that reminded me of uh, one of the very early film projects that I ever involved myself in. And it was almost a pure audio project. There's a book called How Late It Was, How Late, by a Scottish writer named James Kelman. And it won the Booker Prize in probably like 1997, 98. And it's about a boxer who is blind. And so the entire book, he's blind and he's newly blind. But it's a beautiful, heartbreaking story. And I thought it would make an amazing film. Uh, And I thought of this crazy cheap way to do it. And it was to turn it into just a complete audio film and then the film itself would just be Black Leader. I actually contacted James Kelman and pitched him this idea, and he was totally fine with it. So I started working on this dark film, which I think would be the cheapest film you could ever make, just Black Leader and then sound. So basically an audio drama that people would look at, but not see anything, just to experience, because it's a first-person story. And then several weeks later, his lawyer contacted me and told me to cease and desist, but anyway, I think what I'm saying is that if you don't have a lot of money, there are just infinite amount of ways that you can investigate working around that problem until you have to maybe face that problem.
0: Can you just ex- explain for the uh, for the uninitiated what Black Leader is?
1: Yeah, it's just, it's sort of like at the beginning of a film, you might see... That sort of scratchy black tape, and then maybe a countdown 10, 9, 8. Black Leader is just undeveloped film. There's nothing on it. So the cinema experience would just be almost watching like illuminated blackness, you know, where there's nothing shining through, but you have a sense of you no know, light passing through the scratches in the film, the dust and the lens, but no, no real. Image ever developed.
0: I think that sounds sounds a brilliant idea. I think it throws up some really interesting questions. Like now, sound is so important mm. in film and in in TV because nobody's watching, nobody's actually looking at the screen. Mm-hmm. My wife watches stuff wholly uh, over her phone and and just she's literally just listening to it.
1: Have you have you heard of the term ambient TV? I haven't. I read about it recently. It was in terms of a a show on Netflix called Emily in Paris. And this sort of reviewer termed it the first ever clearly developed to be ambient TV show. So it's a show that's designed not to be fully watched, but to be watched or to be experienced passively as you do other things, as you play games on your phone. The writer of the article was sort of suggesting that this was maybe a diabolical plan by the show creators, but I think it's more just a happenstance. And so other things about the storytelling or about the presentation are coming to the fore, or maybe becoming more prominent, like the sound design or the music, rather than having to, you know, have our eyes glued to the screen. I don't know if our eyes are glued to the screen anymore.
0: Yeah, I can't think of anything that I've, since succession... Where I've been, look, not wanting to miss a shot. Isn't that interesting? It is very interesting, and I mean, I'm I'm kind of obsessed with framing shots, and I don't want to think that people aren't looking at it. Well,
1: the film experience is a bit different, you know. I think we may be going to the theater to allow ourselves to be riveted as we once were. You know, uh, that may be the uh, like the forced experience that we we can't have at home because we don't allow ourselves to do it. And that may be part of the changing way of what the theatre experience might become, you know, where we go almost in a meditative type way to experience film, so we can actually focus on it. I mean, because when I do go to the movies, I do stare at the screen
0: in a way that I don't when I'm home, when I'm
1: walking around a room and fetching
0: things while some show is playing. That's a, a lovely idea, meditative cinema going. I really like that idea, that, that sort of immersive stillness. I suppose there are different types of TV and different types of film. I mean, TV recently has become more filmy, but then the viewing habit has changed. So it is very interesting. I did read an article by one TV producer who said that she's telling her writers to put all the exposition into the dialogue in TV because nobody's watching anymore, which I think think is a terrible idea, actually. I mean, I think exposition Mm. is something that you've got to put in i must say you've got to put it in bit Mm. there's a great bit of exposition in john john york's book i think it's something like happy wedding day little sis Mm. it's it's like something you'd never say but it's just all the exposition is in the dialogue exposition for the people who aren't familiar with the term exposition what would you what would you say exposition is
1: i think it's sort of like the desperate information that you want everyone to understand without having to tell them, but still having to tell them. Yeah. That you think, that you think you need them to know. Yeah. You know, it's, it's the opposite of being dropped into a scene where you have no idea what's happening. You know, some films begin in this, like, landscape of this enigmatic world where you're slowly scrabbling to find pieces of information to gather so that you can understand everything there is to know. And it's just very difficult to do that. Exposition would handle that right up front, you know, and tell you all the things that you need to know so that you don't have that uncomfortable feeling of not knowing. And... Exposition is often to take away any discomfort you have.
0: The pain for the writer or the or the audience?
1: For the viewer. For the viewer. I think it's like, if there is exposition, it's there because there's a sense that the viewer won't be following. Yeah. And if the viewer's not following, they're going to be sad or in some discomfort. And we don't want that.
0: I think you get the, the audience that you that you sort of pitch for. If you hint at stuff, you'll get people who can get the hints.
1: mm I think that's almost like the landscape of film and tv is sort of like you might have to bring a certain level of intelligence and reasoning to watch succession to keep up with it you know like there's parts of your mind that are going to be tuning up watching that show that aren't going to be tuning up uh watching something else that you still enjoy
0: yeah i think that there's something i mean people i think people who don't work in in the industry it's quite difficult sometimes to get across how formulaic in a good way things are. When you're watching a film or a or a TV sitcom or a, a cop show or something, you're watching something for a, a form. You know how it's going to go, really, even though it's not explicitly. Yeah. You know what's going to happen. You don't go to an opera and then hope that it's actually going to be wrapped or there's no, going to be no music in it. I mean, you want the form. So you don't watch a film, for example. You don't watch High Noon and... And come out, I don't want to give a spoiler for High Noon, and there's a, gun, there's a fight. So, you know, you don't come out of that going, oh, that wasn't very different. That was just, it was just the same old thing. You went for the same old thing. I mean, really.
1: Mm, right.
0: You're kind of enjoying the, uh, you enjoy the form. When, when you watch Law and Order, there's a, someone who looks like they did it at the beginning or near the beginning, and then they didn't. And they, they might as well be called Mrs. Red Herring because they, they've they never done it. They're never the actual culprit. But that there's a form, right? and we enjoy them.
1: Yeah, every single television show, uh, even if it's a long-form series, you know, like Breaking Bad, which is not like a sitcom based in a living room, it still has the same movement. You know, it's like the, the same dance takes place each time. So you can see this... You know, especially so with like a show like Supernatural, which is a super long. It ran for 15 years. There's like 377 episodes and they're all exactly the same. Um, even though they have, you know, there's movement and different things happen. If you ever pitch a TV show to a studio, they're looking for the engine of that show to see if this is a thing that we can make 100 episodes of the same thing. Is this, you know, can we make a hundred of the same exact things, stamp out episode after episode, because built into that engine is a shape that you can see rotating, spinning a full circle, spinning another full circle, same circles, but you can inside of that draw different little fun things and little colorful patterns, but it's always going to be the same. And then what people return to for that is that same shape. It's going to be this, I'm going to laugh 27 times. There's gonna be a moment of sadness three fourths of the way through, and then at the end I'm gonna be smiling and happy. And I don't look down on it I sound like I'm being condescending. I enjoy that as well. I enjoy the familiar thing, the shape of something, the taste of it. You know, I don't know that I'm loving that, but I love going through that the same
0: rhythm. It's like a song that I like. I'm certainly not looking down on it. I'm saying that it's it's a form. It's like the opera has a certain form. I mean that within limits and you push those limits sometimes and so on. Sitcoms have a certain shape and that can be done in a very inventive way and you can change that shape. I think the main thing is from a creative point of view is that as long as you understand what the form is that you're dealing with, as long as you know it inside out, then you can push it. I mean, if you try and start off as Picasso, you're going to end up with a load of scribbles. But if you learn how to draw properly, and then you can mm. start to push the form. I
1: was going to say, I think that's, I feel like that's sort of the the dream path for all artists. Is sort of like you learn the form and secretly you're thinking, okay, I want to do whatever I want to do. I want to make whatever I want to make. I don't care. And that's fine. And I, I believe in that. But the world isn't going to, for the most part, want that. And so there's that, that sort of difficult compromise you have to make where you have to address the fact of the form, and then draw yourself to it and see if it's something that you can accept and work work within. And then you kind of move along that path from, you know, doing portraiture to doing landscapes to, you hope, eventually kind of being freed into that place, learning how to be freed into that place in really sort of the truest way. And... I do think form itself is something that has to be passed through as an experience, like that is the trade of this and maybe every other kind of thing is you learn the form of it first before you, you can sort of transcend it.
0: I think the problem often with, with script writing or any sort of form of creative writing is people don't understand that there is a form. I mean, there's a form that you, people go, yeah, I don't want to be formulaic you don't have to be formulaic the way you get to be not formulaic is to learn the form and then be better than it not be ignorant of it and then because then you just end up mm. approximating it really badly mm. one thing yeah what i was going to say was going back to um mark's question about how do you get the finance to make a film i'm a huge believer in making films with a phone because Not only do you not really need anything else, phones are such good quality now. The footage you can get off the phone that I'm I'm talking to you on now, the, the resolution on it is incredible. I think you'd be hard pressed to notice that it's not on a professional camera, any footage on this. But what people don't understand is when you film with a professional camera, you're extremely limited in what you can do with it in many ways. So you have to have a huge setup and you, you have to to move it up and down. You have to have cranes and jibs and things. Whereas with a phone, you can hold it in your hand and you can put it on a, you can get a crane shot by just literally sticking it on a pole, usually with a gimbal. But you can get it into tight spaces. You can run with it and move with it. And in fact, I've got a gimbal for my phone. A gimbal is a device for holding it steady so that it doesn't bounce up and down. But what is pretty stunning is that this phone doesn't really need it. It's got s- such stabilization that you can run around with mm. it. Have you seen any? Uh,
1: have you seen any film shot on iPhones? I, I've seen two. There's uh, Steven Soderbergh did one, um, maybe two years ago. I can't remember what it's called. I didn't know it was an iPhone film until after the fact. And I'm sure you know he has incredibly talented technical people working with him. But to me, it was. And And I think they also craftily made use of whatever weaknesses there might be in the shooting of the iPhone, the way they lit it, the way that they, they shot it, the way things moved, you know, almost like the uh, the narrative style of the film was determined by the phone. so it, it they figured out this very clever way to make the look of the film almost feel necessary to. The film itself, anyway, to me, it was just this. It was seamless and very pretty, and I had no idea until I, after the fact, when my son was like, "Hey, you know, he shot that on an iPhone," and no, I didn't know that. So, I mean, this doesn't necessarily answer the funding question. It sort of obviates it by saying you don't need funding because you can do it on your phone. But that's a valid point, especially in terms of how difficult it actually, you know, if you want to make your real movie in the sort of traditional way, there are so many obstacles. Funding is just one of them. It's one of the huge ones. But as you're saying, like, cameras are an obstacle. Every, everything in filmmaking is an obstacle. It's like, you know, getting a man to the moon. It's like a NASA project before anyone's ever landed on the moon. Every single film that gets made is just an enormous, you know, struggle Yeah. Uh, against the universe.
0: One thing I was going to mention was that Often when I've seen footage or films that look amateur, it's not because of the resolution or the equipment that's used, it's because of how it's used. And one thing I'd say is if you're making a cheap film, the way to make it look cheap is to move the camera. Don't move the camera. Put the camera on a tripod, lock it off and frame your shot and film it that way. Don't hold it in your hand. It just sort of makes it wobbly and pick your shot, lock it off on a, on, on sticks on a tripod and then move the camera and then film again.
1: Yeah. That reminds me of sort of my experience working with uh, Steve Conrad and TV shows and just how, so if you wrote a little scene yourself and uh, you had your cell phone or even a good camera, and then you wanted to film it and you did, you film it you will quickly realize that what you've shot doesn't look like what you see in the movies or on TV. It doesn't quite look right. And it's like you don't exactly know where the people are supposed to be or how to catch them in the right positions or whatever. And I just wanted to reference that, you know, so for Steve's two TV shows, when he would sort of storyboard them together, he would reference, he would go to classic films or to other TV shows, and he would physically print or bring up stills of two people talking and he would find where the camera was in terms of that. So he would use sort of like imagery that we've sort of all digested as kind of the familiar, uh, this is how to shoot it. This is where it looks right or best. And he would sort of copy it. And I think one of the things about like amateur films is they don't know that kind of existing language of objects and humans and where they feel best in the screen um how far away they should be how close they should be all those the sort of the shape of things and the way we like to see them is usually completely lost in amateur filmmaking that's why you can tell almost instantly that something's wrong <laughs> like you're looking at bad pictures you know
0: yeah you should know film grammar and it's easy enough to look to look up but it also is one thing knowing it, and it's another thing putting it into practice. And once you get on set, there's loads of things happening and you you can lose track of what's supposed to be where and your circumstances mean that you might have to shift things. So it is, that's a great idea. To, I mean, pick the good stuff and copy it. Right. And that, that film grammar
1: changes, you know, it shifts over time just like language changes. But if you watch TV shows, current new stuff, current new films, they will all s- sort of resemble each other because we do get used to seeing people in certain ways and lit in certain ways and at a certain distance from us in certain places you know so it's it's a complex language but it sort of exists and you'll even see it in terms of like the way people behave you know like facial expressions tics uh, whatever that stuff like echoes across all of these other media and it's almost like you know when you look back Twenty years, and you recognize all these bad hairstyles, and you're like, "Why? What were we thinking about?" Uh, well, that that stuff is—it's deeper than that. It's like it, everything that everybody's doing at any particular time currently, in film, TV, looks and sounds alike to a certain degree. It's like pop music too, you know. It All—it's all in the same family of sounds and places, and it's all kind of shifting generally along some messy path forward. But it's all going together, this big jalopy of, of things. But it's very tricky. I mean, like that's I always I always think like I could never really be a director because I don't know that I could comfortably accommodate that. Like because I'm such a rebel, I don't I don't want to I don't want to do what what is being done. But then anything that I shoot looks dumb, <laughs> you know. It doesn't look right, and I, and I don't I don't have that instinctive visual genius you know, that is required. Like I'm not principally that kind of, I'm I'm more principally a writer. I'm not principally a maker of the image. I see it in my head, but I can't find it in the real world. I can only write about it. But how how do you approach that sort of stuff with filmmaking? Like image making and, and discovering what to do, where to place cameras and actors, and how are you discovering that?
0: I I love framing stuff. I think I can do it well. I was sort of baffled by my own by by my own process because I, I can film and I I know how to do that, but I cannot draw. I mean I mm. I I can't even draw stick men. I'm terrible at it. And yet framing framing an image is something that and, and filming is something I really love doing. And I have you know, I can see it in my head and it always comes out as I saw it it baffles me that uh, that I literally cannot draw to the point where our art director made a t-shirt of one of my storyboards because it was it was so i mean they are terrible
1: oh yeah i've seen your awful drawings <laughs> i mean whenever i see one of your drawings i'm like why did he draw this why would he it would be just much better to leave it to our imaginations and describe
0: it a little bit rather than this but what is this t-shirt oh uh, it's it's the storyboard of a short of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which we were going to film and then we, we couldn't. It was, I mean, it, I sort of took one of the greats of, of British literature, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I sort of desecrated it in the most terrible way possible. Something you mentioned earlier made me think of this, that, that I think that probably the cheapest iteration of a story is a book, a novel. Mm. So, if you can write your film as a novel instead, do it as a novel. I'm reading at the moment a book called *Mithago Wood*. Have you read that?
1: I haven't. No. Is that like a classic fantasy?
0: It is. Yeah. I've never read it before, and uh, I like fantasy. And I love Tolkien and grew up on that sort of thing. But I really can't read most fantasy. You know, the kind of sub-Tolkien stuff. And I, so I find finding decent fantasy to read quite difficult hmm. but our creature effects guy uh william todd jones introduced me to this uh, fantasy book and it's really really soup it's so good i don't i kind of don't want to tell you the premise of it
1: but Wait, is it when, where does this come around in terms of talking is it like before or when is this an old old book or
0: time wise it's it's set just after the second world war Uh, it's not tolkien-esque it's not in the same the same genre really it's just loosely speaking fantasy but it's certainly not derivative of tolkien or anything like that it's not that kind of how would you describe tolkien i suppose that kind of heroic fantasy it's not It's not like that but it's so original but the thing about it is i mean it's it's so visual Hmm. yeah the mythago wood yeah i highly recommend it's hugely original but i struggle to think how you could make it any better as a film Hmm. it's so it's so visual and atmospheric
1: do you think that you know a filmmaker should approach a book with that in mind like is this a better film than it is a book or is it okay if you say I love this book I'm going to make a movie about it but it won't be as good but it'll still be something that I love you know is it okay to do that is a film ever better than a book has that been the case or any of the lord of the rings movies do they they may become close but you know people are still going to say the book's better
0: i don't i don't know i don't know whether there is a i i don't know whether i have a should for that question i'm baffled by uh, remakes I mean, Kubrick making The Shining made, he made something different. Hmm. It's not really a film of the, of the book. It's a film inspired by the book. It's a different thing that seems to be, to be worth making. But then if you do a remake of something, I mean, I I wonder if you, if you're remaking Psycho or something, what, what are you thinking? I mean, (laughs) you know, I think Stallone remade Get Carter, didn't he? Or, or remaking The Wicker Man? What is going through your head when you think, oh, that's brilliant. I'm going to do it again, but just not nearly as good.
1: I mean, if, if Stallone was thinking about that, I, I assume he was just sort of imagining himself in that character role and thinking like, oh, I can really do that. And he probably thought it would be a good movie. Like, he'd be able to make money. I think a lot of, like, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't have another series of Harry Potter remakes. Yeah. Even though the first films are fine. And it's not going to be because there's some writer out there or director out there that's like, we really, really need to make the Harry Potter movies again. It's just going to be that some studio says, we own the rights to this, and we know we can make a billion dollars if we make seven new movies. Um you know, and then they'll hire the writers and the directors and yeah. try to get J.K. Rowling to agree. But I feel like it's money oftentimes. It's just purely money. Or it's some particular person's, uh, like a big star, is imagining themselves in that role and seeing, you know, stars.
0: <laughs> I must admit, we've been discussing it, making Mythago Wood as a film. And and, and I, I've been thinking, you know, how how would you do it? I'm not sure whether I'm thinking seriously about it now. But you know, how would you how would you approach it? Could it could it be
1: what well, what is the struggle? Because it seems like there's a hinging problem here of how to go from one to the other. That's not simply could we make a film as good as the book? Is there some sort of like physicality to the world that is difficult to render or? an unusualness to the story that wouldn't be familiar to audiences? Or, you know, what, what's the struggle?
0: I think the struggle is maybe to, is how what value a film would give it. Because the story is so good. The novel is so good. The The question is, why would you make it as a film? For me, does the film as a form give you something that the the novel doesn't? Or does it maybe add an extra dimension to the novel? Does it inform the novel somehow or something like that? And I can sort of see maybe there are ways to do that, but I think you have to be really careful about how you go about that. And I think it's very easy to, to, it's the easiest thing in the world to take somebody else's work and modify Mm. it in any way.
1: You know, I I do feel like I do think people often will read books and think like, this would be a beautiful movie. I'd love to see this movie. Even while still loving the book, it's more of a, it's a, you know, sometimes, uh, so I, I wrote a lot of fiction stories and I did an audio podcast called Adam's Motion Void where i pretend to be an old man and i tell these stories. But people would send me drawings or paintings from the stories and it was sort of their way of being inside of a particular experience. Um, and I think that, you know, making a film about a, a book that you love is a bit like that. It's about making a world and finding the characters, and, and seeing the story in a new way that you can feel it, even maybe more viscerally. Uh, and that's what one thing that film does offer, is, is a visceral experience that's far sharper than the the book experience, which is it's much more penetrative and layered and complex and rich or whatever, but it's like laying on the beach, you know, and the waves are coming in, and the sun is pouring down, and it's a beautiful experience. But you're not racing through the forest, you know. And there's something about films that it touches us, storytelling-wise and every-wise, uh, differently than a book. So I think it's more like, do I want to live in this world? And I feel like if you're really drawn to wanting to experience the viscera of a novel, that's yeah, worth it's worth making the film, and not and, and not questioning whether the film is going to be the equal of the book, because it won't. It'll be a completely different thing. It's like writing a song about the book, or writing a poem about the book, or it's its own thing, even if you follow the structure. And then there's some books like this book, it sounds like, you know, you wouldn't want to give it the shining treatment. You know, you'd want to honor it in a way. But I think the Stanley Kubrick method is perfectly valid. Like, he read that book, and he had a feeling. You know, he had an experience that he saw inside the book that he felt. Um, and he wanted to render that while using the things in the pantry from that book, the title, the characters, the place, the thing. But then he wanted to bring forward his own authorial sensibility around it. And I think that's valid too, even if it makes Stephen King mad.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I think that's a brilliant uh, articulation of, of something, a different way to think about it. I think another aspect of this question is, is the thing about the broken shark, you know, the the kind of adage is that the best thing to happen to Jaws was when the shark broke because then they had to to hint at the shark. And I think that in some ways, when you crystallize something that's invisible from a book Hmm. and you make it solid, you run the risk of disappointing everybody, it not being what people imagined. But Hmm. also you diminish it in some ways. I mean, once something's... Something's visual. I mean, you—it's less than a huge sort of hmm. mass of notions that's freighted in a word or a, a paragraph in a novel.
1: I think that's true to a sense, but I mean, you know, I read all—not to overdo Harry Potter—but it's a good template to discuss things. It's a remarkably uh, rich and visual novel. With you know, and as you're reading it, it does feel like one of the joys of it is. is sorry if you don't like it, or if you don't like J.K. Rowling, um, but. One of the sort of pleasures of it is the world of it. Still, though, watching the films, the world is even more expansive, more everything than I could ever imagine, and that's due to 6,000 people thinking about it and building Mm -hmm. it out from, they're taking this channeled experience that we're going through as a reader, which is sort of like a pretty tunnel that has, where images are floating past us and we're digesting them one after the next. We feel like we're seeing some, we're seeing Hogwarts and things like that. But then taking all that information and then compiling it into this tapestry of imagery that a film is, it can be breathtaking and beautiful and intoxicating and maybe even a little bit too knowing. You know, so when I read, if I try to reread Harry Potter now, I'm going to picture Daniel Radcliffe rather than whatever came to mind. And there's some little damage that's done by that, I think, because we're no longer as free as we used to be with the novel version. But it's a concession, I think, and I'm willing to make it. I like Daniel Radcliffe. I don't mind picturing him, although his hair is too neat. You know, in the in the books, his hair is all messy. And I remember that's, tru- that's it deeply troubles me <laughs> every time when I see how neat his hair is. Why didn't they make it messy?
0: Yeah, I mean. Yeah, the neat hair, so-and-so. Yeah. (laughs) I think, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Harry Potter, but I love the enjoyment my children got out of it. We went to these Harry Potter studios in in Watford in in England, and I went for the kids, you know, the same way I'd go to a theme park or something. It's not for me, but... I thought it was great. I really loved it. It was really magical. It was really interesting and well presented. Mm. And yeah, I love that whole magical feel that you get. It's the sort of, yeah, the feeling of of going to a a magic school. I don't know what it, but a really sort of thrilling experience. I think that is, for me, one of Mm. the joys of, of filmmaking is collaborating with a team. You know, being this sort of fantasy type, I love messing around with it. I'm seeing the fight director on Friday, and I cannot wait, because it's literally just playing
1: swords. You love, you love sword fights.
0: I love sword fights. I love a sword fight, Sean.
1: You love it. I feel like that's why you're secretly making this movie, (laughs) because you want, you just to like, it's an excuse to do some sword fights. The rest of it can go to hell, but...
0: I'll tell you what, seriously... Mostly going to be sword fights. When I get... I I got a delivery of some swords. Oh, my God. You know, and they... Through through work, so, you know, it's, it's for my work. I get bought a sword for my work, and it's brilliant. I tell you what, Todd, who is the creature effects guy, was talking about slings, you know, shepherd slings. Oh, yeah. Uh, like David and Goliath things. We started talking about them and he was saying about what a formidable weapon they are, or they were in the old days. And they, you know, they'd have battalions of slingers and they, they were like bullets, these, a stone thrown from a sling. So we're talking about this and it was so, we sort of started messing about with them. They're now in the script because, not because of the writer, not because of me, but because of the creature effects guy. And that's, you get, instead of getting just my experience going into the, script you get a a whole team of people who've got completely different uh, experiences and 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 that's really that is what you as you say it's realizing this dream with with lots lots of different people
1: i mean a successful film or tv show is really only successful because there are a hundred people contributing their different talents to this thing you know if you see something that you really like it's not because of one person it's because of all of them, and I think that that can be that can be difficult for some certain types of artists or creators you know like they want to be everything they want it to be their vision and they're not too open to anybody else stepping in but I mean when I see something I love, I know it's because the creature guy contributed the sling uh, to the overall story and have you used the sling? I used the sling when I was a kid, and they they don't work. You put a rock in it and throw it around, and it just stays in the in the sling. How do you get it to come
0: out? <laughs> I I nearly killed one of the uh, artists by <laughs> trying it, but I have been trying it, and it and it's it, I, I can more or less get it to go in the right direction. But again, we've been trying them and trying different designs because it just uh, gives the whole thing a new a new dimension and. course the artists are now getting involved in thinking you know how would what would it look like how would it be made you know so it's very exciting I mean I don't
1: think we've ever really seen I mean maybe somewhere I I don't I don't feel like I've seen a sling in action uh, aside from maybe a a David and Goliath kind of a sequence where he does it around in circles and circles and circles and then whips his hand and somehow a giant rock or small rock goes right into Goliath's head and kills him. But the mechanism doesn't seem like it would allow for that. This little pocketed rock that's at the end of a thing, I I could never get it to come flying out. We never knew, you know, like how does it happen? I mean, that's the kind of cool thing you see in a movie you're like, I didn't know that slings work like that. You know, it's a tiny moment, but you still, you take this kind of like, Little joy.
0: You watch this space. Well, there might be a big reveal. <laughs> so, what do you think about? Shall we start to wrap up? There, we don't want to go too far. Oh yeah. Okay, so I think uh, that was uh, a good ten hours of scintillating audio, Sean.
1: It was a lot.
0: <laughs> Before we say I'm exhausted, <laughs> say goodbye. Where can people see your play?
1: Um, that's a good question. It's going to be performed, uh, next stage, a theater in Putney, Vermont, November 14th, November. I don't know the dates. This is a, this is a bad job because I don't know exactly, but it's in November in Vermont. And the play is called Claire in the Chair in the Cemetery. And It's about a woman who goes to live in a cemetery and how the local gravedigger, tombstone maker, and undertaker believes she's come. Uh, to her uh, final resting place that she's come to the cemetery because she's about to die. Gravedigger's digging her hole. The tombstone makers made her a tombstone. The undertakers picked out a coffin. But she's just planning on living there for the rest of her life, and they have other plans.
0: Brilliant. Well, I will get to see it uh, someday. Uh, I'll get to.
1: You'll never see it. You'll never see it, Dan. It's too far away. It's too small. (laughs) Well, tell us about Holix Calibre, how people can maybe keep track and keep up with what's going on with that.
0: You can uh, sign up to our mailing list at secretplanet.co.uk. And I guess we'd like to answer some questions from uh, our listeners, both of them. If, if you have a question or you just have a comment, please send it to podcast at secretplanet.co.uk. This is going to be a weekly podcast, so we'd love to have some questions and thoughts, complaints, abuse, whatever you like. Abuse can be sent to Sean.
1: Yes, direct it to me. Just say Sean, and then in quotes, abuse, and I'll know what that is.
0: (laughs) So I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, Thank you to Jamie Walsh for producing. Thank you, Jamie. And uh, we'll see you next next week.
1: Do we have a tagline, like, happy filmmaking?
0: Happy filming.
1: That. No, not that, but (laughs) something better than that.
0: I have to think
1: of something right like, oh like you know gather your ideas and go make a film <laughs> not that what about none of these will be good ideas we should have a formal out that's inspiring uh, people to make a movie we don't have to do it now the end but for the second episode